Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. We are glad to have Joseph Boone with us. Joseph is a professor of English, comparative literature, media, and gender studies at the University of Southern California. And today he's here to talk with us about a novel he has recently published called Furnace Creek. Joseph, welcome to New Books Network. Uh, I'm glad to be here. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you. Um, I must mention at the beginning that Joseph is not only a, a creative writer, but he's also a professor of English, and I'm sure uh, he has a lot to tell us about his expertise and his area of research and how that informed uh, the writing of this novel. But to start with, Joseph, can you tell us a little about yourself? How did you become a professor of English and why you chose this specific uh, area of expertise, gender studies, um, gender studies, yeah? Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I, I would say that my general area of studies are gender studies combined with uh, the history and theory of the uh, English-speaking novel. Uh, I've always been fascinated with fiction from the time I began reading, and it, this sort of ties together the two um, directions in which my work is going, both scholarly and creative, because as a kid, I always wrote, wrote fiction all the time. Uh, I think beginning in the third grade, I was doing a boys' series, a girls' series around little mystery stories. And then I graduated to writing historical novels uh, in my younger adolescent years. Then I moved on more to romance as any teenager would, and even took creative writing courses as an undergraduate at Duke University in North Carolina, uh, near where I was raised. Uh, and I had one of those uh, eureka moments, or rather those like bite the bullet moments would be better to put it, when I realized, you know, you're not going to be a famous novelist. You better find another profession. And, you know, I was graduating from college and I thought, well, what do I like to do? I love to read books. Okay, I guess I'll be a professor of English and talk about novels for the rest of my life. And really, it was sort of like one of those moments where I was like, okay, this is it. I can do this. And so I've happily been a scholar of literature, focusing in on the novel and my specific interest in gender and sexuality for a good three decades or so, all the while itching to get back to fiction writing. Uh, I made a little foray in this direction about a decade ago. One of my brothers, who's a composer now, wrote a musical. I wrote the libretto. He wrote the music. So that got the creative juices going again. And after I finished some particularly onerous academic duties. I was chair of my department for several years. I rewarded myself 
uh, when that was over by starting this novel, Furnace Creek. Uh, and, and a bit later, I'll tell the audience if they're interested how I came about this idea. But it, for me, is a return to a love that that of writing that has indeed informed the, you know my whole scholarly career. And just in terms of me, uh, you ask you to tell tell the listeners about myself. Obviously, you can tell from my accent, I am a Southerner. Born in the American South in Virginia, grew up in North Carolina. Try as I may, I've never been able to get rid of the accent. It's still here. And that sense of roots, of origins, and our movements away from origins has been very pivotal uh, in the creation and thinking about this novel. It is very much a story of both coming of age in the South, but fulfilling the dream of leaving it behind onto what you think are better goals, only to realize sometimes that. Those might what you think you want is not what you really want. Yeah, fascinating uh, journey. I, how, how does your being a professor of English? Because I'm a, I have studied literature myself, but I'm not a creative writer. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I'm, I'm horrible at that. But I've known people who are both creative writers, and at the same time, they have studied or taught literary criticism or literary theory. Uh, does that creativity conflict with your expertise or knowledge of critical theory, or does your critical theory knowledge sort of complement your creative writing? Because a lot of famous writers have never really been uh, critics in that sense. Right, right. For me, I'm lucky in that I've found them complementary processes. Uh, this is in large part due to the nature of my English department here at USC, where we have an incredibly vibrant creative writing community. I could list like 12 famous names right now. Uh, But most of those folks also write critical essays. Uh, And likewise, several of our people hired as critical scholarly thinkers have turned to creative writing and it's been done with sort of applause from either side. So the environment has been conducive to this. The most famous sort of crossover example, I think in the nation also exists in our department where uh, Viet Nguyen, the Pulitzer Prize winner for the sympathizer, uh, is someone we hired about 15 years ago as an Asian American lit, you know, junior professor. And he kept scribbling away on the side, not even telling us. And then, you know, it turns out this blockbuster of a novel and uh, now very happily sits on both sides of the fence. He hasn't given up a scholarship. He's still doing that. He's still doing his novels. And uh, that's true for a lot of us in in our English department. Um, Let us talk about your novel, Furnace Creek. Uh, Can I know it's 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 terribly difficult to talk about a novel without really spoiling it and. You're trying to do that. Uh, so let's tell us tell us how the idea of this novel came about. And maybe in two or three sentences, without spoiling it too much for the readers, what is it about? Is it it's an example of a queer coming of an age story? But can you tell us a little about this and how you got inspired to write this novel? Uh, sure. And this indeed will go back to your prior question of how my literary studies have influenced perhaps my creative endeavors, uh, in that I began asking myself a basic question after uh, teaching Charles Dickens' Great Expectation in a class, which was, what would Pip, Dickens' main character, have been like had he grown up in the American South of my youth in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, and 
uh, been a proto-queer youth? Uh, what would have his journey of expectations been like if he had been raised in a small southern town rather than a little village uh, in southwest England? Uh, now, so that that was my kernel, like thinking about doing a template, uh, using great expectations as a kind of template for my plot of an adolescent who feels vaguely dissatisfied with the small town world in which he's grown up. He's smarter than most of his buddies, uh, is subconsciously at least looking for a way out or something to fulfill himself more. Uh, it comes about, and this won't ruin the plot, but through a s- series of unexpected turns where he comes into expectations from an unknown benefactor that sends him off to prep school in New England. Uh, From that, he goes to the Ivy Leagues for college until, true to 1970s rebellious spirit, he decides to drop out, that that isn't what he wants after all, which launches another sort of quest, search for identity, as he joins some of his friends abroad, specifically in Italy and in Paris before he comes home south again to tend to his aging parents. Uh, so that's, you know, I borrowed the expectations plot line, particularly at the beginning, to get started, but sort of trying to filter it through a very contemporary. Uh, I can lit. see Dickens there, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, one, I mean, one of my uh, endorsers on the back cover said something that to me is very telling, and I really, it's something I, was only subconsciously tapping into, but I think she is right. This is Marianne Wiggins, uh, where she says, the American South is our own Dickensian England. And I think there's a kind of truth there in the way that Dickens' version of realism, his sprawling sagas, the storytelling element is something that's so endemic to Southern fiction, uh, that, you know, love of a yarn that just keeps unfolding with its twists and its turns, its coincidences, its eccentric oddball characters, you know, Dickens loves uh, people who are a bit off the norm. And Southerners do too. There's always, you know, there's always that element of the grotesque in a lot of Southern fiction. So that was, uh, you know, that I think made for a happy marriage between my sort of vision, uh, my character Newt's growing up uh, and coming of age as a queer youth and uh, Dickens' story of uh, Pip coming of age. Uh, you put your finger on an excellent point that I hadn't thought about, which is uh, 19th century London and also uh, southern fictions from South America, from uh, southern parts of America. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, so that's fair to say that it's it's sort of it, can we broadly categorize it as a new Victorian fiction because there has been this trend in the past decade or so in literary circles where they kind of bring back those Victorian writers or characters and put them in a contemporary uh, setting. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I think it, what you're describing resonates with me as what some critics are calling post-postmodernist writing and fiction. Uh, a whole cadre of the kind of writers we love to read, Jonathan Franzen uh, and crew, who are, who are basically returning to a kind of realism. Uh, and sort of disavowing some of the pyrotechnics 
of postmodernism where, you know, you're blowing up fiction as you're writing it at every stage of the game. And while these, this new cadre of writers is very self-conscious about their art and they know that art is pastiche from everything that's happened before, you know, nothing's really quite original. Uh, nonetheless, they invest emotionally in their stories and getting us into, to believe in, you know, the plot as plot, even as they're doing fantastic things with style, narrative structure, point of view, that let us know they're very contemporary and on top of it. Uh, let's talk about Dickens a little bit more. So how did you come up with this inspiration to bring Dickens and, spe- you know, and give it this specifically contemporary take? Okay, that's a good question, and it will, it will entail a little bit of a yarn, so here's me being Southern and telling the tell. But a couple of years ago, it was my parents' 50th anniversary. They met in the western part of Virginia, a city called Roanoke, moved to my dad's birthplace, a town called Rocky Mount, Virginia, which is way in the mountains, a little teeny village, 10,000 people at the time. Uh, and so during the anniversary celebrations, uh, we went back to Roanoke, uh, where they met, and then we went back to Rocky Mount, where they for, had their first house. Uh, now, I grew up from the first seven years of my life in Rocky Mount, and I would play with my second cousins, and we would go from the their backyard into the woods, crossed a dirt road into other woods, and we ended up at this place that's really called Furnace Creek, and we'd play there as kids. Now, the furnace takes its name, I mean, excuse me, the creek takes its name from the fact that there was a stone furnace built on the in the woods on the side of the banks. This is a furnace in which Civil War Confederate soldiers cast their bullets uh, back in the 1860s. We kids had no idea that we were playing with history. It was just a fun pile of rocks to try to climb up on top of. But when we revisited Rocky Mount for my parents' parents' 50th anniversary, we also went back to look at the old furnace on Furnace Creek. And it's the instant I saw it, I thought, oh my God, this is the scene for some novel somewhere. This is so evocative of, for me, childhood innocence, but it's being shattered by the ghost of slavery and everything the Civil War stood for. Uh, And yet I wasn't even aware of it. Okay, hold that thought. Uh, I had that sort of like, wow, this would make a great scene in a novel. Go back to USC on Monday to resume my teaching. And one class I'm teaching Zadie Smith's On Beauty, which is her fabulous retake of Forster's plot in Howard's End, where she moves the characters to an updated contemporary New England and substitutes race issues for the class issues that obsessed Forster. Uh, so that was one model, like Michael Cunningham in The Hours, where he rewrites uh, Mrs. Dalloway, of contemporary writers rewriting past works. I went to teach my next class, and what am I teaching? But the first chapter of Great Expectations. Uh, For those of you who remember or have seen the movie, or one of the many movie versions, the novel begins memorably with the young kid Pip on Christmas Eve, lamenting the deaths of his parents. He's in the graveyard. It's cold and dreary. He's just coming into his sense of the world as this alien force from which he feels exiled, like he doesn't have a place. He's an orphan uh, on top of everything else. And uh, as he is beginning to grow afraid of the world, as he realizes how vast it is, how small, what a little Pip he is, this figure, a convict named Mag, which rears his head from behind a tombstone where he's been hiding and grabs the boy. And uh, basically, black 
Mel's pip into abetting his escape. So that was my next eureka moment where I thought, oh my God, Furnace Creek, that setting would be my graveyard equivalent for a story of a young Southern boy suddenly faced with uh, the threateningness of the world outside of him and uh, crossing a milestone in that encounter. So my kid, he's 13 rather than Pip six, uh, is on top of the furnace when just, you know, lounging around when he's accosted by an escaped convict from the local penitentiary who happens to be a black woman. Uh, and so that sets, you know, the similarities in motion there. So all these things converge. The parents' anniversary where I actually saw this place where I played as a kid and thought more deeply about it. Uh, just reading the beginning of Red Expectations and having in mind novelists like Zadie Smith, who have done these marvelous retellings of old forms. And from then on, it took off for about 100 pages until I got to that point. I think, which happens to all of us that are dealing with some form of adaptation where I had to start making it my own story and sort of leave behind the template, which got me going and really claim it as my own novel that could stand on its own feet. So that's my origin story there, or my novel's origin story. Hey, great story, very inspiring. Uh, let me ask you about another thing. Uh, one of the critics who has endorsed your book has called uh, the novel a Southern Gothic. And you know, when we speak about Southern Gothic, we have, uh, and you just mentioned also that this great storytelling tradition in, in, in South, you have Edgar Allan Poe, we have uh, William Faulkner. And interestingly, it, Dickens novels have also been described as urban 19th century Gothic novels. Urban novels in terms of like, you know, London fog, London Night, which 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 clearly resonates, you know, with novels like Great Expectations. But what is your reaction to this? How do you see this novel? First of all, maybe you could tell us uh, what is Southern Gothic for our listeners. Give us a definition, and then tell us how do you react to this? Um, yeah, yeah. Well, you, you've begun to give a good definition with the text that you've outlined. Um, and at first, I was taken aback when I saw a couple of different critics, reviewers, and endorsers calling the book Southern Gothic, because to my mind, my first association with Gothic is the 19th century British tradition and Emily Bronte and Jane Eyre and Castle of Otranto. You need haunted castles you, and, and you know, devilish figures uh, and all that kind of stuff and hauntings. Uh, and I thought, well, I'm not dealing with Gothic, am I? But then I sort of backed up and thought, oh, yeah, well, Southern Gothic, that's a term, too. And that's, you know, I think that has much more to do with atmosphere uh, and the big ghost in the closet in Southern fiction um, since the Civil War has been, I think, slavery and race issues themselves, uh, that we are haunted, though anyone, no matter your politics, if you've been born in the South, no matter how uh, progressive you think you are, you're still haunted by that legacy that abides in the very landscape, uh, in the old ruins, uh, like a furnace that signals back to a prior era, and all those Confederate flags that still get hung hung out on people's porches. Uh, so Southern 
fiction, the best is, I think, one full of ghosts. It's, but it, these are very metaphoric ghosts of our past sins. Uh, Faulkner's a brilliant example of that. Um, but, uh, and this ties into what I said before, it seems to me that a lot of Southern fiction really trades in that storytelling, almost oral quality. You could almost feel like you're sitting on a porch uh, listening to someone tell you a yarn from their past. Uh, Dickens' novels themselves, all Victorian novels, many of them were serialized and were read aloud You know, in the evening. That was in lieu of television family entertainment to have a chapter read out of the newspaper of some work being serialized. And indeed, Great Expectations was one of those. Uh, So there's that orality that I think connects um, the British tradition and the American tradition. And finally, there is that Southern perverse delight or Southern novelist perverse delight, I should say, and the eccentric, the odd, uh, the abnormal, uh, which is a kind of warping of, you know, staid reality. Think of Carson McCullers, Eudora Welty, uh, their types. Uh, th- these are larger than life often figures and singular figures. Uh, and so I consider that part of Southern Gothic too. Uh, but you don't need a haunted house, I guess. You don't need an Edgar Allan Poe's uh, Ligeia or, 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 or House of Usher to be Gothic, uh, particularly for a 20th century writer. But I love what you said about um, urban Gothic, even in the 19th century in England. Uh, there's a way in which in Dickens and other novelists, the city in its technological newness itself becomes fearful. It is the monster instead of there actually being a dragon or whatever, you know, uh, that, 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 that is the secret. So it's right there in front of you in the way that what you thought of as reality has become so warped by this new urban landscape filled with smog uh, and all these accoutrements of the Gothic where you don't know what mystery lies behind things. You don't know, you don't know how the system operates. There's that element of paranoia that characterizes Gothic that comes with the city novel and finds life in, you know, I'm thinking of even something like Thomas Pynchon, where there's an element even of Gothic and uh, something like Crying of Lot 49 in the sort of sense that you're trapped in a plot, it's trapped in a plot, it's trapped in a plot, and you don't know how to get out of it. Uh, Sort of that nightmarish quality. And that is another trait of much Southern fiction, Southern Gothic fiction, is this sense of, reality that's always verging on either nightmare or dream. The lines get fuzzy about between sort of realms of being. Does that answer at all your question? Uh, Yes, yeah, it does. It was a great explanation of that. And uh, how about, let's go back again, kind of break it down a little bit. So in terms of Southern fiction, what are some of the affinities you see with... uh, with 19th century England, or let's say Dickensian prose in terms of its style? Uh, well, there is a sort of languorous quality to the prose. There's a deliberate, often attenuated sentence whose lyricism 
just continues uh, through clauses, subordinate clauses, phrases, and that layering, texturing of the prose, I think it's very befitting for a fiction that is always hiding secrets. You're not getting a transparent surface of things that can be told in easy subject, object, subject, verb, object sort of formations like minimalist, say, fiction, fictional writing. Uh, there's a density to the prose uh, that is something I think we can see in a lot of Southern writing as well. Uh, so style, too, becomes sort of part of the whole Gothic. Okay. Uh, can you tell us uh, <clears throat> some of the some of these unique translations of memorable characters from Great Expectation into the Furnace Creek? So yeah. when you describe the story at the beginning, you could see the general storyline, but what are some of the characters? I guess people, when, when you speak of Great Expectations, uh, one thing that comes to your mind is Stella, then you have Miss Havisham. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, uh, happy to uh, to gloss some of those points. Uh, obviously, my first translation of a character is that of uh, the convict Magwitch, who becomes Zithra Jackson Brown, this very, uh, I would say, smart con artist of a woman who is tired of spending her life as a maid next door, very Southern occupation, and has happened into an enterprise that lands her up in jail for a while. But she's smart enough to make her way out and re-enter the story. I won't give much away, but she's not done for once the character Newt helps her do her escape. And in the process, and she becomes, in some ways, I mean, Magwitch returns in Great Expectations toward the end, but he's sort of a broken down, almost sentimentalized character who just wants Pip's love and forgiveness and dies so that in an escape attempt so that Dickens doesn't have to deal with him, really. Zithra, my version of Magwitch, has a life and a story of her own. And she lives it out to the fullest in ways that are very unexpected. So maybe my novel is more about great unexpectations, taking taking the unexpected route with Dickensian things. Uh, but in, in lieu of Miss Havisham, who as readers of Dickens will remember, hires Pip when he's about 15 years old, I guess. So it's many years later, hires him simply to wheel her around her house and her wheelchair. She lives in a veritable Gothic mansion, falling apart and sort of, you know, she she orders him to play at cards, whatever, and when her, her ward, uh, Estella shows up to be an entertainment for Estella. Well, in my retelling, my character Newt, when he is about 16, is hired in the summer to rearrange this vast library and this crumbling mansion of an old eccentric bachelor named Mr. Julian Brewster. Uh, Southern towns of yore always used to have their legendary solitary bachelor figure that sort of, you know, the, you know, it's sort of an almost leftover part of the aristocracy uh, kind of figure. And Mr. Julian is such, is, he's almost more Truman Capote-esque uh, in his fictional contours than not. And so he has hired the boy 
to arrange his library, thousands of volumes, volumes, and nothing could appeal more to Newt, who loves books, loves learning, uh, feels hampered by what he doesn't know. And in addition, Mr. Julian's house is crumbling a mansion, though it is, as it is, it's falling apart, is filled with mementos of his travels abroad, his years living in New York. Uh, his prior life beckons t- to my character as an emblem of possibility of life, a uh, life outside of the town that he's grown up in. So uh, that's yet another transformation of a character, Mrs. Ha- Miss Havisham and to Mr. Julian uh, with a few twists. Uh, there's also a way in which unlike Miss Havisham and her cruelty in using Pip to revenge herself on men, Mr. Julian, he's very quirky. He can be mean uh, but he also, on some subliminal level, level, is a kind of queer mentor to Newt. This is never said, but there's a modeling that's going on there to where you sense this bachelor figure as a sexual past uh, that didn't fit with Southern norms. Uh, well, Mr. Julian is the ward of a niece and nephew, uh, two kids who are, uh, uh, are older than my character, Newt. And this is the Estella equivalent. I decided to split Estella into two and rather have one object of desire for my character, Newt, to have two objects of desire who are older than him, a couple of years older. They're raised on the continent, go to boarding school on the continent. They, they exude worldly sophistication. And so they sweep into town and literally and figuratively knock my character off his feet because they are so much he thinks what he would like to be, but they're also what he desires. Uh, and they both consciously and unconsciously know how to wrap Newt around their finger and make him serve their purposes. They're at once friends with him, but they're using him too. Uh, and, and they become a part of his life, both of them, for the rest of the novel. Uh, but both of them undergo immense transformations, which I hope are unexpected, but make sense when they happen as well. So I really wanted to I mean, in Great Expectations, I feel for Estella, but I do think Dickens is limited in his portrayal, or she remains sort of a frozen ice queen. And who just is that, you know, she's the uh, femme fatale kind of figure who lures uh, Pippone uh, and then breaks his heart. And there's some of that seduction going on, but I try to give for both Marky and Mary Jo that histories. Uh, that speak to origins and trauma that make them who they are when my character meets them and will dictate to uh, the kind of people they become later in life. I'll finish up with one other more fanciful translation of characters I did. Uh, There's a kind of incidental character in Great Expectations uh, that Pip, when he moves to London, when he's coming to his expectations uh, and gone to the big city to become a gentleman, uh, meets a character named Herbert Pocket. Um, And he's sort of like his best friend in London. Well, in Newt's hometown, as he's working for Mr. Julian, he meets a character named Samson Washington, whose dad works for Mr. Julian. Samson is Pip's age. Uh, He's nicknamed Pockets 
because he wears overalls with pockets all over the place. And so that's my little loose link to Dickens. And I've taken the name from Herbert Pocket and made it the nickname of Samson, who becomes Newt's sort of, I would say, secret best friend, because it's still sort of forbidden to have a black friend in this 1960s Southern town. Uh, and what happens in a sense is that Samson's desires and ambition parallel Newt's, but social circumstances, of course, disadvantage Samson in ways that they don't, don't for Newt. Uh, and it allows me to sort of play out certain realities of, of the South in terms of uh, race relations. Although my Samson character grows up to be Sam, surprises too, and in many ways surpasses minute and what he's able to accomplish later on in life. Uh, so yeah, I, I have fun taking bits of characters or traits of characters and then warping them for my own purposes. But some of those basic characters are, you can see the resemblance with the translation into a sort of more contemporary idiom. Uh, but that isn't the whole of the novel either. That's you know just one part of the cast of characters. Well, I think you've done an excellent job in terms of uh, introducing all these characters without really spoiling the novel for the readers. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah. So let's talk about another uh, theme of the novel. So we have talked about the uh, how the novel you know, speaks with 19th century Dickens, Great Expectations. This this is also a coming uh, coming out as a gay novel, queer fiction, and uh, there's this idea of desire, you know, traveling all throughout the novel, something that somebody is you know seeking after, but it's not really fully realized. It never arrives. So there's, I see that there's, there might be an element of haunting there as well. But can you tell us about this uh, this theme? Yeah, yeah. Well. I- on some level, I'm able to do in this novel with the whole nature of erotic desire, what for Dickens is always a bit occluded by the fact that he's writing as a Victorian and writing in a first person voice, moreover. How much can you let the first person attest to about desire in an explicit way? Uh, so, this is one of the great differences. I'm writing now in 2020. Uh, my narrative voice has kind of cultural permission to go places, I guess, that Dickens couldn't. Uh, and added to that is just simply, I think, my own, um, I guess my own take on desire, which is that it is a fluid kind of thing that we often attempt to fix it with labels or identities and just as often it escapes those categories. And something that I think is still true for many gay people even today, which is being able to uh, decide, am I bisexual? Am I just gay? Am I, is this a temporary moment? Whatever. As enlightened as everything is today, trying to find, it's not just the object of our desire, but its direction, I guess, is a confusing process, particularly when you're an adolescent or a teenager. 
Uh, and so I wanted to dramatize that. My character really doesn't articulate definitively his identity until well into the text, which I find true of a lot of people. As one of my friends was very humorously remarking, uh, you know, Newt, so many characters, so many people are like Newt, where they're really, really smart about everything except themselves. And Newt exists in some of that vacuum. He's so perceptive of the world around him, but he's still having a struggle uh, coming to terms with with his own identity. And it's made all the more confusing for him because both twins hold, the boy and girl, hold such a erotic appeal and power over him. And they're always putting him in these ambiguous situations that would only make him wonder all the more, you know, where is my desire? What is its proper object or its improper object? Um, and uh, something that happens throughout the novel that I get, I think is related to desire is the degree to which uh, so many of the relationships are here are triangulated, uh, which is probably pretty true to life. Uh, we see someone desiring someone, which makes them ourselves desire the person all the more often realize our own desire for someone because someone else finds that person appealing in some kind of way. And uh, these triangulations I amplify through the use of the twins, uh, but also in Mr. Julian's past where he wasn't born a twin, but he grew up with a sister very like him and they themselves are engaged in a triangle around a young man that they've been interested in. Uh, so, so I, I'm not sure I've quite, you know, answered your whole question about the nature of desire or what I'm trying to do with it. Uh, but I'm trying to, I guess, allow a latitude, uh, just like the whole social cast of this, this novel is, is pretty huge. Uh, and yet have characters coming to moments of reckoning where, in betweenness isn't an excuse uh, for what you and your heart know. Uh, Joseph, just as you mentioned earlier, in terms of you know, uh, southern fiction having this having this skeleton in closet, which is slavery, and then we had uh, racism, and 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 when we go in contemporary times, when you go to twentieth century, you have you had the civil rights movements. So uh, in that context. Uh, in the context of civil rights era, and you know, race also, of course, plays a role in this novel. And you're also writing about South. And when people think of uh, South, it's just that 19th century South in, in, in America. So, how do you straight this line between realism, stereotypes, and also, you know, aspiration of uh, creating your characters? Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, once I determined that I wanted to write about a character growing up at roughly the same time I did, uh, the 60s and 70s, I just knew that part of the fabric, the context would be dealing with race as well as, I mean, so much is happening in the 60s and 70s. You have the civil rights movement, you have the nascent feminist movement, uh, you, you have, you know, toward the end, uh, Stonewall, gay rights are starting to take their place. You have a much more radical politics in DC. Uh, it's a real time of ferment. And, um, 
at the heart of it, I think, and the start of so much of that is the civil rights movement. And so I try, it's interesting, it enters, you know, people will be watching the TV, something's on the TV, or there's a headline in the newspaper. And I try to make it true to how I registered these things as a youth, which were mostly frankly, is sort of incidental. You just heard about them. They floated in and out of your mind. But there were really practical ways as a person that as a youth, you were being exposed to and reacting to racial inequality. I can remember us dining at a restaurant, my family, where I was my I was facing the entryway, but my parents' backs were to the entranceway. And me and my brother saw this elegantly clad black woman. She'd just gotten off the Greyhound bus and her small child enter and ask for a table and be turned away. And I was aware at the local Woolworths, there was a white uh, water fountain and there was a quote unquote colored water fountain. And I felt these things as you know, I think kids are more actually probably maybe because we're less ideological. There's a point in childhood where you're much more sensitive to inequities like this. It's just like a big why, you know, Uh, it's sort of like the question, why did God make evil or something? It's also why do people not like these other people Uh, uh, kind of thing. Uh, So on that level, you know, I have nude. He's a sensitive kid, uh, a book reader, uh, confront and overcome some of his own racism. And part of that's through his friendship with Samson. Uh, the the kid the kid whose dad works for Mr. Julian who becomes his best friend on the on the side or on the sly as I said, uh, but um, I don't I don't want to hit head uh, readers over the head with you know uh, issues as issues divorced from the fiction, but I want it sort of part of the fabric and what I realized at after writing the novel and looking back, I was stunned to realize how many interrelational interracial relationships I'd written into the text, just unconsciously. And I think that was my own sort of like uh, defiance of my own upbringing, where there really weren't that many interracial relationships that were approved of. Uh, but in my novel, there are there there. Evolve over time quite a few, uh, and indeed the the character who has the last word in the novel is a young boy born of a biracial couple that's been named Newt after the narrator. So the new generation is this amalgam of the various worlds that Newt's inhabited. Um, so so yeah, race is there. I tried to be attentive to it. I think the challenge that any writer looking back at, say, the 60s or 70s faces is how do you portray realistically what it was like, the words people used at the time, say, the attitudes that were rampant, and our own contemporary self-consciousness about what those words, terms, etc. do. Uh, now, it, for me, it, it wasn't an issue for me, but it was, this is a fascinating example. One of the very first drafts I gave to one of my sophisticated New York City friends to read, someone very much in the literary world, and they were like, well, it was sort of like, 
you're going too far with your black characters and the names you give them. This sounds like, you know, you're, you're just hyping on stereotypes or whatever. And so I asked one of my best black friends, who's a novelist of what she thought. And she just laughed and said, I could outdo your names, you know, a hundred to one that yours sounds so like what I knew and grew up with, you know, uh, characters who have odd names, the black characters. And then she was going through her own litany of everyone she knew as a child. And so that made me feel better that I was being at once, I was being true to an ethos, maybe that other people aren't quite so aware of, think, you know, whatever. Uh, but uh, I've been very encouraged by the response in terms of this angle of the novel, because it was one that I frankly, you know, worried over and worried about, you know, there's always the question of who, who gives voice to whom, who can speak for whom, and how could I, for my black characters, without speaking for them, give them hints of a depth and past and lives utterly unconnected with my main characters that we subliminally as readers pick up on without being hit over the head with the fact that, you know, my character, my white characters only seen part of their lives. So I, so I try to give all of my black characters lives, sometimes implicit, sometimes hinted at, uh, that elude the perception, both of the reader and the other white characters surrounding them, uh, in a way that, Let's us know that the black characters have and lead lives that exist well beyond the page. Uh, our characters, my characters know certain other characters in certain ways, but there's always the part that escapes their perception. And, and that way, I hope to hint at the agency uh, that many of my black characters have. And a couple of, one case, the case of Zithra, you, you'll see it spectacularly come to fruition. But even with characters like uh, Mr. Julian's uh, manservant, George G. Washington, who's Samson's father, who would seem to be a stereotype of the faithful servant or lackey in many ways we have all these sort of signs that he's withholding from mr julian all sorts of facets of his life past and present down to his very name uh which makes him a much more interesting character than just the person who opens a door or does something at mr julian's bidding uh we sense lives uh that go beyond the page and uh it, it's Charles Dickens' Great Expectations, famous for having two endings. Uh, when you were translating all these characters, you know, getting your inspiration from Charles Dickens, did you ever entertain the idea of having two alternative endings? Or, of course, we don't want to talk about the ending here. But how did you? And uh, okay. uh, I mean, how did you come into play with that idea? Uh, it's a fair enough question. It's one that I've gotten asked a lot of times by people who know their Dickens. Uh, and the odd thing is that it didn't occur to me until I was almost done with my final draft, where someone asked me, a friend, like, hey, are you doing the Dickens thing with two endings? And it started me thinking, well, what would it be like if I posited alternatives uh, to Newt's adulthood. Uh, what happens in Dickens, for readers who don't know, is that for the serial version that appeared in the newspapers over a year's period, he wrote one ending that's pretty somber and dark and short, uh, 
readers and his editor and his publisher were in, in arms about this. So for the the ultimate book version of Great Expectations, he creates another ending that it's not your typical happy ending, but it, it does have a note of possibility uh, that brings things to a more traditional sense of closure. Uh, now, I didn't want to, yeah, I mean, I toyed with the idea, how about if there were the found original ending that Joe Boone actually wrote, but then was discovered after his death and appended to the novel, because that's what happens in the case of Dickens. We read the Penguin with the second ending, but there's always an appendix with the first ending. Uh, but obviously, I couldn't do that since I'm still here living and breathing to tell the tale. So what I did try to do was give the reader in a realistic kind of framework, an option of possibilities where let's just say that there's a hinge-like effect with the two last chapters, which are both chapter 37. One's called Another Day, and we see Newt leading his typical life now, and he closes a journal he's been writing in after it. Then in chapter 37, Redux, called A Perfect Day, he is writing in the journal, then puts it up, and then we go on to a realization of things he had fantasized about the chapter before, but now seem to be coming to fruition. Uh, But it's sort of like a hint. You could either read the more somber version as simply a record of him predicting what his future would be like to be superseded by another future, or you could read that being the life he leads, and he's got his journal out because he's going to fantasize something happier. Uh, that's the most, I guess, postmodern uh, part of my novel. But it's it's not the same as, say, what John Fowles does in The French Lieutenant Woman, where you have three. You know, choose this or choose this or choose this. These two ex- exist simultaneously, and I think you can hold them in your imagination as equally plausible, and you simply read it the way you read it. Uh, so I did toy with the ending kind of as an afterthought, but I think it makes it all the better. I've made my first scholarly book was all about uh, the perils of closure and the love plot and the way that novelists have for centuries tried to undo that that kind of tidiness and make room for open-endedness and ambiguity and i think i was very influenced by that and coming up with my own closural sort of gestures uh there you go but reader uh listeners out there you'll have to read to find out what i'm talking about yeah in, in yeah regard to this <laughs> and uh you are, and for our listeners, I mentioned it at the beginning that you're also a literary scholar. And again, for our listeners, we're going to be talking to Joseph soon again about his uh, very, very important scholarly book to publish in 2015, Homoerotics of Orientalism. Uh, but I'm not going to talk about that book uh, today. The question that I have is, you are scholar and you write very, very serious scholarship. So how, how different was it for you to write a novel? Uh, for me, it came naturally because, as I explained earlier, I spent half of my childhood writing fiction. However puerile it was, I was always entertaining the imagination and putting it to prose. Uh, and so I've seen or felt the process of doing creative work as a return to something I already knew, but I know better now 
for all of my literary training. Uh, and, and this is one of those cases in which I think it was wise that I waited to write fiction because it's so much richer and potentially more meaningful because of the experience I've lived and can, and have been able to pour into uh, the rudiments of a novel like this. Um, it, it's my fond wish, which may not be true. I mean, scholars are notorious for writing, and even English literature scholars for writing knotted, twisted, theoretically dense prose. Uh, my book, Homoerotics of Orientalism, like my first two books, is like a mega book. I tend to write these 500-page critical books. But I try to introduce an element of narrative in them so that they're telling a story as well as being critical exercises. Uh, and again, it's my fond hope that my early attempts at writing fiction and just creating story carry over into the scholarly writing. I know some people have, some reviewers have complimented my scholarship on being more readable than most. It doesn't mean, and you can talk to this next week, it doesn't mean it isn't complicated uh, or dense, but hopefully less so than uh, some other people's writing. And in turn, I do think that my years of studying the novel as a form through its myriad transformations over time, over continents, uh, has enriched the field of, what do you want to call it, uh, language, imaginative language, that I parlay into my own storytelling effort in Furnace Creek. And in term, uh, terms of academic academia, I know that you'll be writing and producing scholarly work, but in terms of fiction, is there anything else on the horizon soon? <laughs> Uh, I hope so. I have a contract for a collection of short stories that are all done. Uh, I'm sure that I will be revising them quite a bit, uh, but probably in about a year's time, that collection will come out uh, from the same press. So, uh, And that was a thrill to write, too. Uh, I started it immediately once I finished the novel, uh, because short stories allow you to experiment so much more so you know in one i'm using second person which i've never used uh some uh, for, for really old people some through children uh you just some it's more imaginative some is historical um you can play when you're writing short stories uh right now the title is conditions of precarity because every character in at least one character in each story is like balancing on the edge of either disaster or some, or moving on. Uh, they're in a precarious position. And I'm trying in all those stories just to capture what it's like to be on that edge. Joseph, thank you very much uh, for this fascinating interview. I'm sure our listeners will be thrilled uh, to pick up the novel and read it. So it's called Furnace Creek. Again, uh, Furnace Creek, yeah, it's the story of a coming of age. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been my pleasure.